Hi, you're listening to the Law & Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law & Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Law and Blockchain podcast. My special guest this week is Jason Gottlieb. Jason is a partner in Morrison Cohen's business litigation department and chair of their white collar and regulatory enforcement practice group. His practice focuses on regulatory enforcement, litigation, arbitration relating to securities, commodities, cryptocurrency futures, and derivatives, and structured finance. Jason has authored the MoCo Cryptocurrency Litigation Tracker, and we'll post the link um, on the page. And he was named in the National Law Journal's inaugural list of 2018 cryptocurrency, blockchain, and fintech trailblazers. He's also been widely quoted um, in a lot of different media, including CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg Law, Fortune, the National Law Review, so on and so forth. And Jason and I actually, you know, frequently speak on a lot of crypto and blockchain panels together. So thanks for joining me, Jason. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, I, I feel like we just saw each other two weeks ago. Um, wow, I'm super excited to have you on today's show because we get to talk about a fun little topic called enforcement. And, you know, in 2017, <laughs> <My> <laughs> in 2017, when, you know, ICOs were going wild and thing, you know, people, and it really was, you know, just the wild, wild west, um, you know, you and I remember that's when you and I connected and we were like, hmm, this is all probably not going to end really well. So why don't you start us off with giving us maybe a brief overview of what's been happening on the enforcement side of things over the past couple of years? How did it start off and, and what does it look like today? Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks, Amy. It has been a, a pretty crazy couple of years. Uh, in 2017, as you uh, pointed out, we had a slew of so-called initial coin offerings or ICOs where uh, entrepreneurs would effectively try to raise money uh, for a project that they were doing by selling coins or tokens, effectively uh, digital representations of something, whether it was some unit of value, whether it was a currency, a commodity, it, it, was, it was something. And the the difficulty of figuring out what that something was led a lot of regulators to get interested. Of course, which regulator is going to be interested is going to depend on what the something is. So if it's a security, then the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, would get involved. Uh, For commodity futures or commodities traded in a spot market uh, that are traded with fraud, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission would would get involved, the CFTC. Of course, any criminal act Activity is uh, governed by the Department of Justice, uh, which frequently works with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which is a division of the Department of Treasury. And we've also seen state attorney generals and securities commissioners and, and the Internal Revenue Service and the Federal Trade Commission get involved, again, all depending on what is this coin, what is this thing people are issuing. 
Well, the answer was it, it could have been a lot of things, and it was a lot of things. So a lot of these regulators got involved in various kinds of enforcement activities. Uh, essentially, the regulators were trying to figure out, uh, you know, what what's going on here. Now, let, let's take a, a second to distinguish between blockchain current blockchain technologies and cryptocurrency because the a blockchain as as the the listeners from this will probably know it's essentially a distributed ledger it's like a, a microsoft excel type of system but that resides on nodes on on various people's uh, computers and it's distributed so if one change is made to the system that change is reflected everywhere at every node on the system it's effectively a different way of recording information in a cryptographically secure method that's fine that's technology and technology is inherently neutral there's no problem with that however one of the applications of blockchain blockchain technology this cryptocurrency which could have taken on many forms of security commodity uh, uh, currency anything else well the regulators wanted to take a closer look at that because they were concerned about the traditional things they're looking at uh, money laundering fraud uh, market regulation and transparency and and as a result uh, the regulators got heavily involved in in 2017 uh, trying to figure out whether anyone was misbehaving in the market very interesting continue <laughs> <laughs> right i'm a lawyer i could just talk forever <laughs> uh, so let's let's take a moment to talk about what they were looking at uh, effectively there were there were sort of three different tiers of misbehavior that that the regulators were looking at uh, the first which was the the really the bad stuff the outright fraud where there was no real legitimate project so i said to a general public I'm going to sell you Jason coin. You give me a dollar and I'll give you a Jason coin. And people gave me their dollars and I said, ha ha, thanks suckers. And I took off. That's clearly fraud. That's criminal. And the department of justice uh, mm -hmm. takes, does not take kindly to that kind of thing. And nobody does. The, the next level down though gets, uh, it's still fraud, but it may not be criminal fraud. It, it could be a, a civil fraud, a securities fraud that the SEC looks like. So I'm selling Jason coin and I actually have a legitimate project that I'm selling. I have a legitimate use for the coin, but I'm selling it on fraudulent promises. You invest in Jason coin, you'll make a thousand percent overnight. You, you can't say that, that's, that's fraudulent. And the SEC would crack down on those and starting in the fall of 2017, the SEC brought several bellwether cases uh, to crack down on that sort of behavior. Uh, the third type of misbehavior is something that we've seen the SEC cracking down on only more recently, where there is a legitimate project, it's a real project, it's sold honestly with, with no allegations of fraud, but the SEC believes it was an unregistered offering of securities and therefore it violates the 1933 Act. We've seen this more recently with the SEC's actions against Kik and against Telegram for violations of the, of, of the unregistered securities offerings provisions. And that's different. They're not saying you committed fraud. They're saying you didn't follow all the rules that we set forth for securities issuances. So Jason, what ended up being the results of some of these enforcement actions? What, what, did, what were the penalties? 
Well, like like every good legal question, the the good legal answer is it depends. It depends on the facts and circumstances. Uh, I referred to uh, a few bellwether cases uh, in in 2017. Uh, in two of them, a, a case against a person named Renwick Haddow, and then another uh, against a coin called Recoin and uh, Maxim Zavlasky. Uh, those cases ended up basically with complete victories for the authorities, and uh, those two individuals were indicted. Uh, Zavlovsky was uh, recently just sentenced to a year and a half in, in prison. In the third wow. case, uh, the, the, the Plexcoin case, uh, where I was counsel of record, uh, so I'll be uh, more careful about what I'm saying, uh, <laughs> there was a settlement reached uh, with the SEC uh, in which a certain amount of money was given to the SEC uh, in order to return that money to the investors. Uh, we've also seen several administrative settlements with the SEC. Uh, the first two that were really uh, groundbreaking were with uh, announced on the same day, uh, one called Paragon Coin and one called Airfox. And in those, uh, the the companies uh, had to pay a small penalty, but essentially they just had to offer a refund to the investors in those coins. Uh, following on the heels of that, the SEC's message was, why don't you come forward, all of you people who did ICOs, and you you know maybe we'll we'll even waive the penalty if you come forward. And they settled shortly after with, with a, a firm called Gladius Networks where Gladius offered the same deal. They would offer a refund to anyone who purchased. And in that case, because Gladius self-reported, they did not have to pay a penalty. So everyone thought, okay, well, maybe there's a trend here in what the SEC is demanding as penalties and, and what people have to do. But I think that model has fallen apart a little bit. There was not a rush of people coming forward to offer refunds. I think most of these companies couldn't offer refunds because they, <laughs> they, took, in, they took in the money uh, and they spent it on developing their projects. Uh, or they took in the money when the crypto markets were, were hot and then after a decline, they just didn't have the money anymore. So we, we didn't really see a, a rush of self-reporting. More recently, the SEC had uh, settled a case with a company called Block.1, which raised uh, Ether worth several billion dollars from the general public, yeah, uh, including a portion from, 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 that's a lot of money. <laughs> from, yes. uh, uh, so some portion of that was from, from U.S. residents, and they didn't register the offers and sales under the securities laws, they didn't qualify for an exemption, and they settled with the SEC for a penalty of $24 million, which is a, a large penalty uh, in these crypto cases in terms of its its absolute amount, but in terms of a percentage of $4 billion, it's actually a, a pretty small price to pay. I mean, you know, ask ask pretty much any entrepreneur out there if you could raise $4 billion, but then you had to give $24 million of it to the SEC, would you do it? And I think most of them would, would have said yes before you uh, finished answering the, asking the question. Uh, so, you know, but what are, what are the takeaways from this set uh, of settlements? And it's, it's actually kind of tough to figure out. I mean, the first three settlements were to get people to come forward, but it, it didn't work. So maybe the SEC needed to start enforcement again with bigger absolute value penalties. Uh, we also know that these settlements have fallen apart because the companies haven't been able to offer refunds. They've, they've missed their deadlines to do so. So even the, the theoretical structure that the SEC set forth isn't going to work. It hasn't been working. Um, but if you look at blo the block 
one settlement, you ask yourself, well, why why was it so small as a percentage? Was it because the token had been issued a long time? Was block one too big to fail? Uh, or is there a jurisdictional issue because only a portion of it came from U.S. residents uh, and the SEC didn't really want to fight a jurisdictional fight against someone who had $4 billion in the bank to fight them? It's, it's unclear to me, frankly, what the takeaway is from all of these uh, put together. And I think we're going to need a few more data points to figure out if there's any discernible trend. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a tough question. I think there will be more data points because, as we we said, there's a slew of ICOs in 2017, and even though it seems like the SEC has been very busy coming down on them over the last couple of years, they've really only reached a, a very small percentage of what actually happened out there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how many more. Of, of this backlog of cases are brought in the future and to see if we can discern any trends from those. Well, let's talk about a company or project that has taken the exact opposite route and doubled down on actually fighting the regulators. I'm sure you know I'm talking about kick or kin. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a fun, interesting saga to, to watch. Um, yeah, do you want to do you want to add some color about that whole case, or at least give us an intro about it? Sure. I mean, Kick is is a, a fascinating one, and it's the first case that the SEC uh, brought litigation in where there was just an allegation of a violation of Section 5 of the 1933 Act, that is uh, an unregistered securities offering. There were no allegations of, of fraud, at least no cause of action uh, alleged for fraud, even though, frankly, some of the things the SEC put in the complaint sounded a little bit uh, iffy, shall we say. So in Kick, I think Kick forced the SEC's hand. Uh, usually, for, for those of you who don't practice uh, with the SEC, uh, the SEC will conduct an investigation, and then they'll frequently go through what they call the Wells process, uh, uh, named after uh, a certain Mr. Wells, uh, where the SEC will uh, say the staff of the SEC will recommend to the commission uh, that an enforcement action be brought. However, you can submit what's known as a Wells memo, which uh, lays out your case to try to convince the commission why the action shouldn't be brought. And then, of course, the, the commission will only bring an action if they get a vote of three or more of the five commissioners. So it's your chance to try to convince the commission not to bring a case. I know the staff also gets to submit uh, their Wells memo to the commission, which you don't get to see. And then the commissioners can, can look at, at both memos and decide whether they want to authorize the case or not. In most of the time, this process plays out completely confidentially. Uh, Wells memos are, are not publicly filed. Nobody knows about them. And you only know it happened if the SEC decides to bring a case. And, and even then, you may assume that there was a, a Wells process, but you, you may not actually know. It's, it's not public. In Kick's case, uh, it was highly unusual. They decided to release their Wells memo publicly. Uh, they, they, they posted it on a website and said, this is what we just submitted uh, as our Wells memo. We think this whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, frankly, that, that was, you know, flicking the SEC in the ear. Uh, <laughs> and I think it left the SEC very little choice 
but to bring that publicly, uh, but, but to bring the public litigation. So the SEC sued in federal district court. I think it put the SEC in a box. If, if they hadn't done that, it basically would have been a signal to a lot of other folks on the street that the commission was not going to sue on these facts, and it would have provided a roadmap for everyone to say, we're just like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SEC was not going to allow that. So, you know, if they weren't inclined to litigate before Kick publicly released its Wells memo, which, to be honest, they probably would have, uh, they I think they definitely had to do it after Kick publicly released it. And of course, the, when Kick released its Wells uh, memo, it was it seemed very one-sided, and many in the crypto community thought, "Hey, you know, this this is actually a bad case for the SEC." Uh, but of course, it's very one-sided. And when the SEC released its complaint, which of course is it's just allegations, it's it's not proven fact; it's just a set of allegations. But I think many people in the crypto community looked at the uh, frankly well-drafted allegations, which included a lot of uh, primary source materials, emails, uh, posts on Twitter, uh, clips uh, or quotes from uh, conferences uh, where uh, Kick's CEO, Mr. Livingston, had presented. And I think the, the crypto community said, oh, oh, actually, maybe the SEC's got a point here. Uh, so that that's going to continue to play out. Uh, Kick continues to be aggressive about uh, its defense. It is apparently reasonably well-funded. It's got uh, two very, very good law firms. It's Wells Memo, I have to say, was was very well-written. So my hat's off to those lawyers. And we'll see how this uh, how it plays out going ahead. Yeah, and they have they have really dug their heels in. They've actually now, I guess, closed. Um, their main business, which was their messaging platform, and they're they're going all in on these tokens that they have issued. Um, I believe they even did a very public Kickstarter or or some sort of crowdfunding campaign saying, hey, you know, we're fighting this case for the entire community, chip in for our legal cost. And I think they were trying to raise, you know, a couple million. Um, and at first it looked like it was going really well, you know, within the first 24 hours, several thousands of dollars was in there. And then, you know, I think there was an online um, discovery that folks had said, hey, um, actually the first several thousands of dollars were, was from Kickerkin itself. Um, the, and their, their venture, <laughs> I know it's funny, right? These, and then their, their VCs have um, been very supportive of their position in fighting the SEC. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how all of this goes down. Um, how about IEOs? What are those? Are they any different? Do you expect to see any litigation there? Um, so in an, an IEO, an initial exchange offer, is effectively a, a direct listing uh, version of an ICO. So where, whereas an ICO was kind of like a, an initial public offering, come buy our stock, and then later it might be traded on some exchange, an IEO is where an exchange directly issues it. So you can go buy the stock right on the exchange. It trades right from right from the beginning. And there's uh, one particular uh, exchange uh, run out of Hong Kong that's been uh, doing a, a lot of these. 
I think that the SEC is going to have many of the same issues with an IEO that it has with the ICO. That is, if it's an unregistered offering of securities, and the SEC will will uh, be its own judge of what it thinks a security is under the venerable uh, SEC v. Howey test from 1946, uh, then the SEC is going to come down hard on that IEO. I, I think that most of the IEOs I've seen are not trading in the United States, at least not from their primary exchange. This is most likely because both the issuers and the exchange understand that the regulatory risk would be extremely high, that the SEC would view the offering as a securities offering uh, and uh, look to shut it down or take even more drastic measures. So, you know, maybe I haven't seen it uh, and it's possible it exists, but I have not seen an IEO yet that's sort of a direct offering into the United States. That being said, you know, the internet is, is global and on the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog or a crypto trader. So, you know, it, it, it's fairly easy for Americans who want to involve themselves to circumvent systems, use uh, VPNs or other, other means. Uh, some of the exchanges have uh, KYC AML requirements, so it's, it's a little harder. But uh, frankly, some don't, and you know Americans uh, have been, uh, you know, entrepreneurial, shall we say, in their uh, efforts to trade around the geographical restrictions that issuers and exchanges are themselves uh, putting up in order to avoid the SEC's ambit. Got it. Interesting. So, you know, on this podcast, obviously, we have a lot of attorney listeners. Not all of them are in the enforcement um, or defense side. So let's say uh, one of their clients hypothetically gets one of these many subpoenas that have been going out over the past, um, you know, year or so. What should they do? Uh, well, of course, give me a call. But uh, <laughs> if uh, assuming not, uh, then you know when you're handling uh, an, an SEC subpoena, uh, the first thing to note is is this a subpoena for documents? Are they looking for testimony? What what exactly are they looking for? Uh, my general practice is to call the enforcement staffer who sent the subpoena. And uh, try to figure out what you what you can about you know what what it's all about what they're looking for. Uh, sometimes you can get an early indication whether your client is to, to use uh, DOJ parlance and which the SEC doesn't use, but they're they're familiar enough with it to see whether your client is is a a witness or whether they are a subject or target of the subpoena. Uh, frequently, your client may just have information that's relevant and the SEC doesn't think you did anything wrong. Those are typically uh, much easier to negotiate and manage your way through uh, than if you are potentially one of the SEC's targets. The SEC will not tell you very much about their uh, investigation at first, uh, generally speaking, but you can get some more information as, as you proceed through it. Uh, of course, I would. Uh, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of uh, being very, very straightforward and candid with the regulators uh, about all factual issues. Uh, they're going to find out 
<laughs> one way or another. <laughs> they're they're going to find out. Uh, so really the, the key for an SEC enforcement defense lawyer is not so much to try to you know hide things from the SEC, but to try to understand what really happened here, to, to do a little mini internal investigation and sometimes a much larger internal investigation to see what happened, what are the facts, what are the good facts, what are the bad facts, what exactly are we dealing with here? Because at the end of the day, uh, success for your client and whether, whether that's uh, getting through something quickly, efficiently, easily, cheaply, and then making the SEC go away, or if uh, the SEC really is fixated on your client uh, getting to a good, healthy settlement that, that your client can live with, the, the key to success, however you define it, is figuring out what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and being able to explain the story from your point of view, from your client's point of view, to show that whatever the SEC thinks, it's really not as bad as they think. Got it. Fantastic. Jason, how can people find and follow you? Um, my firm is Morrison Cohen, uh, so I'm on the on the web. You can always just Google me is the easiest thing. Jason Gottlieb, Morrison Cohen. We run a cryptocurrency litigation tracker uh, that keeps track of all of the cryptocurrency uh, litigations, both private litigations and, and regulatory enforcement and key regulatory pronouncements. And the easiest way to find that is also uh, just by Googling, Google cryptocurrency litigation tracker or uh, Morrison Cohen cryptocurrency, it'll come up. Uh, you'll be able to find that pretty easily. Uh, I my, my personal webpage is on my firm site, so you can find out all about me from that, uh, from the Google search. Uh, I am on LinkedIn, Jason Gottlieb and Morrison Cohen, and I'm on Twitter where I tweet about uh, cryptocurrency and uh, sometimes uh, politics and music and whatever other uh, <laughs> crazy stuff enters my head. So there's a little, a little bit, you know, as with everyone else, I think LinkedIn is very strictly professional and, and then, you know, Twitter, you have a little bit more personality for better or worse. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.